With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Speak the Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Tardio. Today's episode is being sponsored by Hello. Fresh. I would like to thank every single one of you who watched Monday's video for sticking around with me. It's funny, you know, like going through some of the comment section on there. A lot of you guys were actually really concerned for my health and I appreciate it. I didn't really get much sleep the night before for several reasons, uh, but I just felt horrible that uh, Monday. I don't know if it was allergies, combination of sleep allergies, but I just felt like a bag of wieners. It just sucked. Anyways, so thank you guys for sticking with me. I know that was very rough probably to watch and a lot of you guys struggle through it, but we're back to the bread and butter of talking about Ukraine. That's right. We are back to the bread and butter talking about Ukraine today. We've got several things that we're going to be going over, and I mean several. And I started this off looking into the Battle of Bakhmut and what was going on there, um, and that kind of led me into ammunition supplies that were going on. So I, I went from this really interesting train of thought of let's look into the Battle of Bakhmut. Like I said on Monday, I wanted to look at, you know, our strategy and the way forward going into Ukraine and what Ukraine would have to do in order to get the W in and just end this thing, which is pretty substantial. Um, so part of that, as you guys might know, is ammunition supplies. And my, my head about kind of exploded when I started looking into a lot of the figures that Ukraine is going through. Um, and Russia, to be perfectly honest, Ukraine and Russia's figures as far as ammunition is concerned going into it. Um, and then moving forward a little bit, um, I found some other interesting stuff. So we've got the Battle of Bakhmut we're going to be going over. We've got ammunition supplies because it is extremely important. It's actually extremely interesting to talk about um, what that's going to look like for the Ukrainian forces. And then over out of the Zaporizhia Oblast, all right, um, there is reports coming out of Zaporizhia now of torture houses being found. Now, torture is not something that's new and specific to the Ukrainian war by any means. The United States has tortured people. Uh, I mean, it, it it happens. But I think when I show you this video that came out of Zaporizhia, if you haven't seen it yet, you're going to here on this episode. Um, yeah, it's pretty eye-opening. Now, it could be staged, but that's going to be for you to decide. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. And then finally, we're going to finish up with the NATO convention in Lithuania and exactly what's going on with that over there. Because again, I think it's also very important to understand, you know, the way forward, what what exactly is NATO doing, you know, and, and what's NATO promising Ukraine? And I'm telling you right now that we're helping them out a lot and we're doing a lot as far as NATO is concerned, you know, keeping out of the war. We're doing a lot from the outside going in. But Ukraine is far from being a member of NATO, and we'll talk about that here in, in just a little bit. But first, let's go ahead and dive into the Battle of Bakhmut. So this episode, as I'm talking to you right now, is being taped on July 12th. So this is everything current up, up to as of now, okay, the morning of July 12th. It'll post tonight. So heavy fighting took place outside of Bakhmut, and it has been for a while now. They've been going at it from the north, and they've been the Ukrainians have been attempting to assault from the north, and they've been attempting to assault from the south going in. But there's also another one that comes straight out of the west, pushing east, 
that Ukraine's been doing. And they've been so successful to that point that they're able to get up right to the edge of the city. And a unit of them actually had like breached into it a little bit. I saw a couple of videos and whatnot on them. And then they ended up having to uh, pull back just ever so slightly because the fighting got too hard. They hit the Russian trenches and they were in the so-called gray area as they were over there fighting. And that ended up having them fall back a little bit. Well, when they were doing that, a Russian unit kind of like swooped around and jumped onto one of their supply roads. Now, Russia is claiming that this unit's cut off and that um, uh, they've got control of the supply route. So they're SOL. And then Ukraine turns around and says, no, we actually planned on that. We've got trenches going right up to the road. You haven't taken the road yet. So kiss off. We've got our people. Don't, don't you worry about it. But the interesting part is the, the amount of advancement that Ukraine has been able to make in and around that city. The city is filled with Chechens and it's filled with regular army soldiers that are now within it. Wagner, may, there might be some leftovers, but probably not. Anyways, they they are up against a hell of a fight from a dug-in enemy. And the fact that they've been able to get into and breach up into the city within itself is huge. Now, I said on the last episode, I felt that Ukraine's goal for Bakhmut would be basically to... Um, basically to encircle it and then cut it off and starve them, uh, starve them out because it's, it's going to be pretty hard fought terrain. And I still stick by that. And if you look what the Ukrainian forces are doing, they are setting themselves up for an embellishment of Bakhmut in order to take control of all the Russian forces inside there. Now, Ukrainian forces have been off and on claiming for the last day and a half or so that they do have, uh, the town enveloped and are in charge of some supply routes, but that's just not the case. I don't, think um, from looking at the current advancements and where they're at now everything's stale as it comes out obviously so as of taping this it could be in control of it right now and I'm just unaware of it but up to the point of me taping this episode they are not in control of um, the supply routes for the Russians going in so the Russians are still able to get resupplied in and out um, and it's going to be a hard long fought battle very hard long fought battle what I'm going to take the next little bit of time talking to you guys about right and it has to do with ammunition. Ammunition is one of those things that if you're going to fight a war, you got to have it. Um, and you can't just have a little bit of it. you got to have a lot, especially in this case. And the supply chain going in, you know, when I originally looked at the um, advancements that the Ukrainians are making in Ukraine, taking their sweet time, I was started to, I, I did wonder to myself whether or not there was a little bit of that issue going on with ammunition. So in the last episode I talked and I said, look, there was Ukrainian commanders that have came out and said, we have been running extremely thin, right? We don't have a lot of people. We're running extremely thin. There's times when they're making assaults with a one-to-one ratio. That is one Ukrainian for every one Russian. And that's the losing side of the fight. If you've ever conducted offensive operations, you know that you need to have more people. Doctrinally speaking, all right, doctrinally speaking, you want to have three soldiers for every one defender, all right? So three assaulters for every one defender in order to guarantee victory. And the reason you do that is because people are going to get killed and wounded, right? So three to one odds helps you out quite a bit. On the flip side, if you're in a defensive situation, all right, you can hold strong in a defensive situation one to one. Um, this is why you, I, I don't know, fatal funnels are a problem inside of buildings, right? Because you can typically get it down to one individual coming through that door and you have those little choke points. So as you look at defending places, uh, not to give you a lesson on tactics, but when you look at defending places, essentially you want to set it up that way, right? So uh, Ukrainians are assaulting with less people than needed in order to accomplish the job, all right? One-to-one ratio at best sometimes, 
Russians are dug in. They have the gray zone. What do you think is going to be that step up that allows those Ukrainians in order to assault those Russians? So before any major operation, most of the time, before any major operation, you have what's called shaping operations going into them. And I think that's what we're actually currently seeing outside of Bakhmut right now. We have multiple shaping operations going on with the main goal to sack the city itself, right? But when it comes to any offensive operation that Ukraine holds, they have to have shaping operations. And the thing that they commonly use, again, they, you know, they don't have air, air force, they don't have air superiority. So what they end up using is they end up using artillery and they use quite a bit of it. So to give you an idea about how much artillery is being shot inside of Ukraine, right? Now, the best estimates right now, and this is best estimate, about 80% of the casualties across the board in the Ukrainian war are coming from artillery. 80% of the casualties. That's pretty significant. All the shelling in the Ukrainian war has come at a cost. About $46 billion worth of weapons, equipment, and ammunition has been supplied to Ukraine between January of 2022 and May of 2023. The managing editor over at SoftRep, he puts the estimate that Ukraine is shooting more 155 millimeter arty rounds in five days than the U.S. produces a month. I'm pausing. I'm allowing you to take that in for a second. I'm going to say it again because I found it in multiple places, not just the editor of SoftRep, but multiple people. The managing editor over at SoftRep puts the estimate that Ukraine is shooting more than 155 millimeter artery rounds in five days than the U.S. is producing in a month. They shoot more 155 rounds in five days than the United States can produce in a month. And they've been doing it for a very long time. The EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Morell, said Ukraine is shooting roughly six to 7,000 artillery rounds a day. Six to 7,000 artillery rounds a day. I want you to guess how many Russia is shooting. I found estimates between 20,000 artillery rounds a day and 50,000 artillery rounds a day. So between 20 to 50,000 artillery rounds, Russia is blasting back at them. So... Clearly, Ukraine is outgunned in the artillery game. And if you're if you're looking at doing any sort of an offensive operation like Ukraine currently is, you kind of want to flip those scales. Um, if Ukraine is being outgunned to that number, they really don't have fire superiority. And that is exactly what you want in assault is fire superiority. Now, that's not to say that Ukraine, Ukraine can't take and move those artillery pieces around and put them outside the specific objectives and hammer that objective, right? But that takes time and logistics in order to accomplish those things, which they're likely not going to be doing all the time. They might do it on a special occasion, but probably not all the time because they have a lot of battle space to cover. Six to 7,000 already rounds a day, Ukraine shooting. 20 plus thousand already rounds a day, Russia shooting. According to the Ukraine's defense minister, in March of this year, Ukraine needs about 356,400 shells per month in order to meet its battlefield requirements. So March, granted, stale information's a little bit stale. We're talking, you know, what, four or five months ago? 356,400 artillery shells a month just to sustain what they need for mission readiness. Ukraine has the ability to shoot about 504, or excuse me, 594,000 artillery shells per month because of all the donations of the artillery and stuff like that coming from EU, the United States, you know, NATO country, whatever, all the donations came in. They're, they're capable of shooting 594,000 artillery shells a month. Now that's not entirely true. 
Um, I think they have the capability of shooting it, but whether or not they, they can is another question because their artillery guns, there's those tubes, like the, the actual um, barrels have to get swapped out after about 2,500 rounds on average, but 2,000, 2,500 rounds on average, they end up having to swap these barrels out. They don't last very long. And with the rate they're going now, they're going to be burning through every, like those barrels are probably way beyond where they need to be with the amount that they're shooting. So what has the U.S. Um, given over to Ukraine so far? We've got 2,000 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 10,000 Javelin anti-armor systems, 70,000 anti-armor systems and munitions, 198 155 howitzers, and over 2 million rounds of ammunition, 7,000 precision-guided 155 artillery rounds, 14,000 uh, remote anti-armor mine systems, 100,000 rounds of 125-millimeter tank ammo, 10,203 um, arty rounds, over 50,152 millimeter artillery rounds. So we've given them quite a bit in that arena as it goes. Uh, two million uh, 155 howitzer rounds. <clears throat> However, that two million rounds, when you're talking about them shooting 375,000 rounds a month, goes pretty quick. Um, so they are crushing everything that's being thrown at them and they're, and they're shooting it out. And there's reports of them having to essentially ration out their artillery and ration out their mortar fire as they're going into this. So picture yourself as a Ukrainian soldier going to conduct an assault and you don't have air support and you are relying on artillery and you've got more coming back at you than you have going forward towards the enemy that you're actually assaulting. And I think that paints a pretty dang good picture of what, the Ukrainians have been up against. They don't have a lot of support and they're, they're just going out and crushing this entrenched enemy or attempting to crunch. And I think this is why we're seeing such a slow movement on the front line. If we're being perfectly honest, um, you know, if Zelensky had the ability, he would like to take that country back in a day. Right. But I don't think he can. And I think this is one of the other reasons, you know, when we talk about depleting the enemy's ammunition, I don't think there's going to be very much depleting as far as, Russians artillery is concerned now their ability to get it up to the front line being able to plead that's one thing which is why I think what we're seeing in Bakhmut where they're going to envelop the actual city itself and that way they can actually put it under siege and you know go in and assault the dang thing after they're kind of drained for a while but if they're not doing that then you know Russia's going to keep resupplying they have just just too much the boost in supplied artillery rounds is set to cost the U.S. taxpayers about 145 billion dollars to increase the production of 105 excuse me, 155 rounds by the U.S. Army from 14,000 a month to 24,000 a month. So the United States Army is increasing the um, amount of 155 rounds that they produce a month. They're starting off right now at 14,000, and they're boosting it to get it up to 25,000, 24, 25,000 by the end of 2023. All right, so again, that's obviously not going to cover um, what it is Ukraine needs. So there is another contract that's actually floating around. Obviously, the United States is tracking on this issue. Right. Like they're tracking Ukrainians artillery. We don't have enough to get them like they're not able to meet their current um, rate of fire that they that they need from the battlefield commander. So we need to increase production to help out the war effort with that. Um, General Dynamics got a contract. OK. And this is according to the Associated Press. General Dynamics is under contract to produce twenty four thousand one five five shells a month. So General Dynamics, twenty four thousand U.S. Army hopefully by the end of 2023 is getting up to about 24, 25,000. That takes a total to 50,000 artillery shells a month being produced in the United States alone. 
Now, obviously, we're not alone in this, okay? There is the EU that's out there that is obviously going to be supplying a lot of stuff over to Ukraine as well. So they're looking at an estimated, I want to say it was 2 billion uh, euro, a 2 billion euro package in order to send over there, but it has yet to be approved. <clears throat> Excuse me while I drink some of this fine coffee. So take a bite out of summer with HelloFresh from chef-crafted seasonal recipes to their new fresh and fit summer menu. HelloFresh brings flavor right to your door. Pre-portioned ingredients help cut down on food waste while step-by-step -step instructions make cooking a breeze, not a chore. Make your home the hangout place this summer with crowd-pleasing eats from a backyard bratwurst bar to tangy king lime pie. HelloFresh Market makes summer entertaining a cinch. HelloFresh is going to save you a ton of time because guess what? You don't have to go to the store. Everything's going to be pre-packaged, pre-portioned, pre-everything. All you do is slice and dice whatever comes in there, cook it, and you're good. Your significant other, your family is going to think you're a beast of a, of a chef. But guess what? HelloFresh pretty much does everything for you. It's super, super easy. So go to HelloFresh.com forward slash speak the truth 50 and use code speak the truth 50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Yes, speak the truth 50. Use promo code speak the truth 50 for 50% off plus free shipping. Shipping it. I'll link the very top of the description. I'm telling you guys right now, it's America's number one meal kit. Check them out. They'll save you time. Your family will love you for it. I was also looking because I know that the United States isn't the only one that produces these artillery shells. And if Ukraine's going to need them to push them out so far, and the EU isn't the only ones either, by the way. But if, if, if we need these artillery shells to push out, apparently there is a stash of them in South Korea and the EU is just, again, sending the money over to South Korea. They're suspicious of it. They don't want to do it for whatever reason. Um, but, yeah, that's that's all over there, so they have it. But the EU is going to be ramping up production as well. Um, they understand this issue. They understand the problem, and they're all tracking it. Like I said, there was about a $2 billion package last I checked that they were looking at um, getting on, but they they nobody's approving the money to go there. So this brings me to my next point that goes into the cluster munitions that Biden is sending Ukraine, right? Well, he just approved it the other day. We talked about it. Um, he approved the cluster munitions to send over Ukraine. And I think I even uh, criticized, I know the press has criticized quite a bit. Um, why are we sending over those cluster munitions to Ukraine? What is the purpose of doing that? Now, the United States itself has used cluster munitions um, as recently as Iraq and Afghan wars. And we're not against it. There's about 120 countries that have um, are signatories to not use cluster ammunitions. The United States obviously is not one of them. Neither is Russia. Um, Russia even answered back. I want to say it was uh, late last night, early this morning. Russia had answered back and said, "Look, if the United States is going to use, or if the United States is going to send cluster munitions to Ukraine for Ukraine to use, then Russia is going to answer back with even more cluster munitions, and it's going to be even more accurate." Now, after talking about the amount of artillery that Russia actually shoots at Ukraine, I would tend to believe that. So why, oh, why would we want to, if, if, if I was a, a commander on the ground looking at this, right, why would I want to use a weapon that I know is going to set me back just a little bit further? Because Russia's going to answer back with the same weapon. Not that they haven't been already, but it hasn't been widespread, right? They've been using them, but it hasn't been widespread, okay? I'm aware Russia has used cluster munitions, but it hasn't been widespread. So why would Ukraine want to use cluster munitions knowing that Russia is going to answer back with more of them. And I think what that actually ties into is the fact that they're running out. I think they're running low on artillery shells and that they need to get more. And we looked at the cluster munition artillery shells because we haven't tried that many of them. I'm sure we've got a stash of them. And we're like, hey, we have these that we can supply to kind of like be a stopgap and fill that stopgap in to kind of help you guys out. 
but that's not enough that's going to help them to, to push through this offensive, right? They're going to need a massive order coming in in order to make it happen. If they're shooting 6,000 rounds a day now, when they actually go on the offensive, they're going to be shooting way more than that if they have the capability at the time. They should be shooting 10, 15,000 rounds of artillery shells a day concentrated on specific areas in order to assault these enemy positions, right? So I believe what we ended up seeing was we ended up seeing a lot of the clutch munitions that the United States provided as a stopgap filler for this whole artillery crisis that's going on with the Ukrainian army, which is holding them up on their assaults. I think if they had enough to actually shape operations and push in, they'd be doing a hell of a lot better. Now, I understand that I'm also sitting back here in the United States. I'm armchair quarterbacking a lot of this stuff, but I'm saying it based on experience and I'm saying this based on, uh, you know, a a long military career where I studied tactics that if they don't have that, it's going to be much, much harder for them to conduct these assaults. So it's kind of a problem. Anyways, hopefully we get this supply chain issue figured out because right now it's not, it's not looking good. If, if Ukraine can't get a steady supply of artillery shells coming in, their offensive is going to grind to a halt. So they've got to get this, they've got to get this problem squared away. All right, moving on into the NATO summit in Lithuania, the NATO summit in Lithuania. Day one has been completed. Currently day two is going on right now. I was listening to Zelensky on the way in. After day one, it didn't even take that long. Zelensky was not happy or pleased, in my opinion, (laughs) with what uh, came out of that conference on day one. Don't take my word for it. Uh, Here is a tweet by President Zelensky. He says, On our way to Vilnius, we received signals that certain wording is being discussed without Ukraine, he wrote. It's unprecedented and absurd when time frame is not set for invitation or membership. For Russia, this means motivation to continue its terror. Uncertainty is weakness, and I will openly discuss this at the summit. So after day one, what has changed for Ukraine? And the answer really is absolutely nothing. Um, they gave what appears to be, has, hasn't came out yet, but they basically gave Zelensky conditions for um, when he's going to be allowed to join NATO. So there's no timeline set to it. And that was kind of one of his things is that it's unprecedented that they didn't give him a time frame for when he can actually join NATO. And I believe, I think the common sense reason they're not going to do that is because they don't want a country at war that joins NATO that immediately jumps into an Article 5 conflict, right, to where everybody just has to go in and, and now defend Ukraine. So with him looking at that, I decided to go over and check out NATO and see specifically what it is, because, you know, you can read articles and things like that, but let's just go straight to the source. Let's just go over to NATO and see what it is specifically um, that they're looking into. And I'm going to go over, I'm going to play this for you real quick, um, the opening address that was giving at NATO, and we're going to play it in the English. So, once again, good afternoon. Welcome to all of you to this NATO summit. Many thanks to our host, Lithuania, and to you personally, President Naceda de Gitanas, uh, for hosting all of us. And let me also welcome uh, President Ninesto, who have been at many NATO summits uh, before, uh, but this is the first NATO summit where you actually um, attend as a full-fledged member. So welcome to you, Sauli.
And then also a warm welcome to Prime Minister Christensen. Following the agreement yesterday, we will soon also be welcoming Sweden as a full-fledged member. So welcome to you. I always hate this part. Just nothing but a bunch of kissing. Like, get over it. I understand the formalities, but I always hate that stuff. Today, we will make uh, many decisions for an even stronger alliance. We will increase our practical and political support to Ukraine. This will bring Ukraine closer to NATO, where it belongs. We'll also take bold steps to further strengthen our deterrence and defense including new plans and forces for the defense of the Euro-Atlantic area. And we will agree a more ambitious defense investment pledge. Let me now uh, pass the floor to our host, President Nauseda, for his opening statement. Please, uh, Gitanos, you have the floor. Dear Jens, my dear friends, allies, it's my honor and great pleasure to welcome you all in Vilnius. Welcome to Lithuania. Lithuania, where freedom has never been taken for granted, where values have always been stood for, where allies are always welcomed and cherished. Lithuania is a country where the principle one for all and all for one bears a very special meaning and is carried deep in our hearts. Today, the most brutal war is being raged by, by Russia against sovereign and independent Ukraine at the doorstep of NATO. Today, allies are meeting in Vilnius to testify to the importance of collective solidarity and defense. Also, to take bold decisions on how to strengthen allied security and defense, help Ukraine to win, and boost our partnerships with like-minded countries in other regions. Unity, solidarity, and the transatlantic bond are irreplaceable pillars of our success. Dear friends, let me wish us all productive discussions and wise decisions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, President, this ends the public part of the meeting. I thank the media for joining us at the top of the meeting, and we'll continue in just a moment. Thank you so much. Okay, so there you have it. There is the opening statement from NATO, or the open remarks at the NATO summit in Lithuania. Now, if you were listening closely, there was, believe it or not, some actual pretty decent language in there that would lead you to believe that they're going to be taking care of Ukraine. He said, this will bring Ukraine closer to NATO where it belongs. So that statement within itself will tell you they are not adopting Ukraine anytime in the near future. They just said it's going to bring Ukraine closer to NATO where it belongs, not we're going to adopt them. Right. So there's words have meaning, people. We will also take bold steps to further strengthen our deterrence and defense, including new plans and forces for the defense of the Euro-Atlantic area. And we will agree a more ambitious defense investment pledge. So, right there in the opening remarks, we can see that their goal is to just bring Ukraine closer to NATO, attempt to approve some more funding to get going over there, and then also look at the way um, in which they're addressing this issue with Russia going on right now, invading other countries. 
So the overview, if you go over to NATO's website, you can scroll all the way down and it gives you kind of an overview on some of the different things that they're doing um, in order to support Ukraine. So while material support is important, it's also important for NATO to actually do one or two more things. Um, one of their key, um, what, what do you want to, key points, okay, is deterrence and defense. And this is how on the NATO site it's actually described. Since Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea from Ukraine in 2014, NATO has implemented the largest reinforcement of the Allies' collective defense in a generation, enhancing its ability to defend all allies on land, sea, and in the air, in cyberspace, and in space. In response to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, NATO is further stepping up its deterrence and defense, including with new regional defense plans and a new force model with more troops at a higher readiness. So I'm going to blow this up on your screen real quick so that you guys can see it, okay? Um, if you're unfamiliar with this region, shame on you. Um, if you're watching this channel, i got a feeling you're, you're probably a little bit more familiar with this region. But what you're looking at, okay, is you're, you're looking at Europe, Ukraine, and Russia all going over in itself. Um, I didn't have the best tools in order to use for this mapping. So Russia, as you can see, has that big nuclear symbol sitting right on top of it, big red one. But what those little blue things represent, those little blue chess pieces that you see on your table, the knights, those are actually uh, NATO brigades. So that's currently where NATO used to have four brigades, and now they have eight total. So they now have eight total brigades over within this region, and they're all doing exercises, preparing to launch, and doing everything else. But what I want you to do is I want you to look specifically where they're at going north to south. They're in every single freaking country, minus Moldova, but they are in every single country along the Ukrainian-Russian border. They're in Estonia. They're in Latvia. They're in Lithuania. They're in Poland. They're in Slovakia. They're in Hungary. They're in Romania. They're all up and down that entire freaking border, and they're set up, and they're 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 just poised and ready to go. So while I sit back and I say, look, NATO should be doing a lot more to help Ukraine out. Um, as, as far as this war goes, providing those munitions and things like that that they're actually going to need in order to advance and, and take out and take down Russia and kick them out of Ukraine. When you look at the amount of effort that they've actually put in outside without Ukraine being a member of NATO, that shows pretty damn strong support for Ukraine. Just looking at that map, when you look at it, if I was a, a Russian commander sitting back looking at this map and I go, okay, NATO's sitting there right on the border of Ukraine, that that's pretty freaking intimidating. So I, I think it's good enough to keep Russia in check on the plus side. I think what they did is good enough to keep Russia kind of in check with where they've got everybody going and they have a lot of support going into it. All right, so as you can see, NATO is doing quite a bit when it goes um, for Ukraine and they, they really have stepped up their presence in the region quite a bit. And they've quite literally put their money where their mouth is supplying um, weapons, equipment, munitions, and then just the support within itself all sit on the backside of Ukraine. So there's a lot of support that's coming out of there, but just from the opening remarks of the NATO summit, we can see that Ukraine will not be joining NATO anytime soon. They look at bringing it closer, but it's not going to be an acceptance um, over in there. And to be honest, they, they could use quite a bit of help right now. So coming out of the Zaporizhia region, Zaporizhia Oblast. Um, Ukraine made some territorial um, gains um, in the last couple of weeks going over through Zaporizhia. 
And one of the things that they found, not just a few kilometers from the front line, or so it's being reported that they found just a few kilometers from the front line, um, is torture chambers. So the Russians have been accused of torturing. And I this is one of the first looks, and I think it's a very good look into some of the things that Russia is actually doing. So we'll put this video up on your screen so that you can see it. Um, I'll warn you, it is kind of quite disturbing um, what you're about to see inside of this building. So the video I found yesterday, and it shows a Ukrainian soldier walking down in a basement um, over in the Zaporizhia Oblast, right after apparently one of the offensive operations that they, they took a chunk of the terrain. And this location is reportedly within just a couple kilometers of um, the old front line that Ukraine now has under their control. There's a soldier walking down in here and he finds all sorts of um, random torture equipment. And it's kind of weird. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this video for you. And I would, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to let you watch it in peace without saying anything. I'm going to play this video for you. And then we're going to go back and we're going to analyze some of the stuff that's actually in this video. Because it's quite literally disturbing. So that's the end of the video. And hopefully y'all saw some of the same things that I saw because I started hard looking into it. The first thing you come across is a gas mask. And the gas mask is taped off down near the bottom. There's only one thing in my mind that that could really be used for, and it's not smoking ganja. It is quite literally to put over somebody's face and to cause them the feeling of suffocation. So the gas mask within itself is pretty creepy. There's something more in that video that I'm going to point out here in just a second. Some of the other things that you might have noticed inside that video is little electrical wires and things like that that have little connection nodes that are probably being used to shock and electrocute people, or so it would seem now. I might as well say this right off the get-go. This whole thing could be staged. It could be Ukrainian propaganda. It could be absolutely nothing. The whole thing could be set up. Right. So let's just clear the air there. That's exactly what it could be. But also, it could be Russians are actually torturing their people, uh, torturing the people that they came to liberate, if you will, um, torturing Ukrainians. So, yeah, they have lots of crazy stuff going on within there. But on that little white table, if you're paying attention to it, on that little white table, there was a couple items that that really drew my attention that just 
give me the creeps even talking and thinking about it. The first thing that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about that handsaw that's sitting on that table. And if you, if you look at this picture of that table, there's a couple things. Number one, that handsaw has got a bunch of blood on it. And it actually does look like it's been used to saw and cut on things. Right. Um, if you look at the wall, it might be kind of hard to see on your screen, but y'all are more than welcome to go look this up. If you look at the wall over behind it, you can also see more blood stains on that wall that are over behind it. However, one of the most disturbing things that you can see on that table is actually highlighted and it's a bloody footprint. There's a bloody footprint on that table. Now, I went over and I just started looking at stuff and I, I pulled up a, a Reddit account and on, on one of the Reddit threads, it actually showed um, people taking this bloody footprint and breaking it down to the actual size. And somebody made some very good points. Uh, one for that to be a scissor table, the white scissor table. If somebody was just standing on that table, the table would have collapsed. It, it more than likely wouldn't have supported that weight and the table would have just gone down. So that's thing number one to talk about. Thing number two to talk about is the actual size of the footprint. Now, these Reddit users, they took that that saw blade, estimated it to be about 20 inches. I'm, I'm assuming that's the average length for a handsaw. All right, but assuming that it was about 20 inches, one of the Reddit users said that it looks to be about a size 6 men's foot, like U.S. size 6, which doesn't really make it a man. It either makes it more or less a full-grown woman or a child, for that matter. Right or a very small statured man. Either way, it's pretty dang tiny and, it, and it's small. On the floor, there's that tiny little shoe. Um, obviously, that was a kid's shoe. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that there was children present. If you look at the video itself, there's stuff that's just scattered all around that room, all over the place. Um, old household items. So that shoe could be one of those leftover household items um, that's left in there. I, I don't, your guess is as good as mine, whether or not that child was there. So that leads us to believe that if the table can't support the um, 100 plus pound human being that would have been standing on that corner, that there would have been a limb that was hacked off and just sat down on the table. So we've got a suffocation mask, electrocutional devices, and a bloody footprint on this table. So... The stuff that was taking place in that room, if this video is real, is absolutely insane. Now, let's talk about some of the things that I did not notice in this video. With that bloody footprint on that table, if they cut somebody's leg off with that saw that's sitting there, and they could have used something else. But if they had cut somebody's leg off and set it on that table, I would expect to be expect to see a lot more blood. So one of the things I, I see lacking inside of this video is the amount of blood that would come from that type of trauma. It's just not there. You're talking about severing some pretty serious arteries. Now there's some science that can go into that and say like, you know, the human body shuts down and it closes things off, but that only lasts a couple of minutes. So maybe it's possible that they tourniqueted this person's leg to keep them alive and then cut it off and then set it on the table. But even then I would expect to see more dripping blood and whatnot around there. I don't know. I mean, if the whole thing is absolutely disturbing. And these are not, this, this is not an isolated incident of this being found. Rush has been accused of doing this. 
for a very long period of time when it comes to torture. Within the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, people were claiming that Russians were torturing some of the workers inside of there. And a lot of the liberated villages, especially in the early days of the war, a lot of the liberated villages after Russia was kicked out, they found mass graves. There is accusations of people being tortured just to, like when they're going through the filtration camps, just to determine whether or not they're Ukrainian or Russian sympathizers. Which which side of the road do they, they go down? So... A lot of these, and this, here's here's the disturbing part. This is estimated just a couple kilometers from the front line. And if this stuff is being found a couple kilometers from the front line, the question is when they start pushing into the DPR and the LPR, and when they start pushing in deeper into these other Russian territories, what exactly are they going to find? It's pretty freaking disturbing when you think about it, what actually could be out there and what the Russians are actually doing. Yeah. All right, so to sum up today, we've got a lot of things that we covered. Bakhmut, I don't think it's going to be a very quick battle moving forward. I think the Ukrainian supply issues that they're currently reaching with their artillery shells, Russian shooting roughly, you know, uh, five to ten times more artillery shells a day than Ukraine's shooting right uh, over at them. So that's going to slow their assault and advancement. And in addition to the fact that they're kind of low on troops, I will break this down a little bit further um, here in the near future, but I found so much of this stuff intriguing that I just felt the need to get all this information out to you guys today. I also want to take this opportunity to remind you guys that Ryan Hendrickson is coming on the show on Friday. Ryan Hendrickson from Tip of the Spear, Tip of the Spear Landmine Removal, um, retired Green Beret, awesome guy, just a stand-up dude. He's doing this stuff out of his own good over there, demining Ukraine for humanitarian purposes. So stay tuned for that because it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I can promise you that. Um, Ryan is a stand-up guy, and I absolutely love him to death. I can't wait to hear um, some of the, the things that he actually has to say about what's going on over there. Until next time, I am Matt Tardio, your host. If you guys want to find me on Instagram, you can go over at angertab is where you can find me. And peace, love, happiness. I am out.